0: Well done, you all. The first service was far more Presbyterian than you guys. You guys, the, the clapping was sporadic and very, very much offbeat. All right. <laughs> let, let them know that. Uh, all right. I am Nick Swan, I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all of those of you in the West Hall and online as well. Uh, we're going to be continuing our First Peter series, uh, which we've entitled "Alex Exiles. And we are going to be in Chapter 2 this morning. And our title, the title of this morning's message is Honorable Witness, Honorable Witness. So if you can please stand with me, Uh, we can, you can turn to your pew Bible or in the bulletin that's provided. We're going to read our passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would be present by your spirit this morning, and that through your word you would purify us as your people. Give us eyes to see, to see you more clearly. Give us hearts that are soft and humble. That as Chris was saying, that as you speak to us, that we, your people, would be willing and open to hear you. And Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, empower us to abstain from sin and to love what is honorable and good. Because all that is honorable and good is in Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. I've done a good bit of premarital counseling uh, throughout my pastoral life, and it's one of the things that I love to do the most. You get to meet with this young couple. They're happy. They're optimistic. You can hear stories about how they fell in love, what they love about each other, what their dreams, their hopes, their aspirations are. It's a joy to be a part of this moment in a couple's life. It's also a joy because you get to prepare them for the challenges that you know are coming but they do not yet know are coming. The conflicts, the the difficulties with expectations, how to argue, how, how to handle all the difficulties and challenges, the ups and downs, the hopes and the dreams, the dashed hopes, the dashed dreams that they are going to encounter in this life. It's a joy to prepare them for it. Yet in reality, I know there's nothing that I can say and do in this premarital counseling time with them that can actually prepare them for what it is like to be married. I can talk all day long like, here's how you communicate in the midst of a conflict... It's always different when you're married, when you have to go to sleep and wake up next to that person and when it's not just in theory being kind and gracious and forgiving, but actually being kind and gracious and forgiving that they realize just how hard it is to actually be married. There's no way I can prepare them and give them the knowledge that they can only gain through the experience of doing. That's why when I do premarital, I often will set up a three and six and 12 month post-marital time so once reality is set in the shine is kind of worn off and they're actually married and living it out I get together with them to really talk about now that it's no longer in theory and actually in reality what questions do you have how can I help you grow and what do you need me to do to help you learn how to truly be a married couple we're at a turning point in the book of. First Peter, and the first couple chapters are almost like premarital counseling. He's talking about their identity, he's talking in theory, he's talking up here. And now he's going to turn a corner, and he's going to start talking to us about how we actually live this out. Not in theory of who we are, but who we are now and how we actually live. And so the whole second half of this book, he's going to be shifting from theory, who we are, to practice how we are to actually live. In light of who we are, how do we actually live? The real life the Christian life. And the main point for this morning is this. God calls us to live honorable lives in the midst of a wicked world so that we might bear witness to the glory of God. God calls us to live honorable lives in the midst of a wicked world so that we might bear witness to the glory of God. Now, this call has two fronts. There's a putting off the passions of our flesh, and there's a putting on of living honorable lives. And the first point this morning is this, the war of our passions, the war of our passions. Look with me again at verse 11 in your bulletin. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. So let's unpack this verse a bit. He starts with his affection for them. Beloved, He loves them, they know him, he cares about them, and the words that he's about to share are out of love and affection for them. He then urges them, and this word urge here, it's really not quite strong enough. What he's saying is uh, he's imploring them, he's calling them, he's he's pushing them. You need to consider. Uh, The King James says, I beseech you, therefore. There's something strong. I really want you to hear what I'm about to say. He then reminds them of their identity, that they are sojourners and exiles. He's pointing these synonyms he's pointing to over and over again in this book. You are not a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of heaven, and you are living as sojourners and exiles on the earth. You are God's chosen people living in the midst of a fallen world. And then in light of this, he loves them. He's beseeching them. He's reminding them of who they are. He calls them to... ...and action, to abstain from the passions of of the flesh. Now, these passions are over-desires. They could be things that are actually evil that we know we are to abstain from. Things like sexual immorality or greed or drunkenness. They can also just be over-desires, good things... ...that we've made ultimate things, made into idols... ...that we then love more than we love God. But either way, whether these are things that we know are sinful... ...or they're simply good things we've made into idols... ...he tells us to abstain from these passions... ...to avoid them, to stay away from them. And here's why. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh... ...because the passions of the flesh are waging a continual war against our souls... And the words flesh and soul are important here. So flesh points to the things of this world, the world in which we are in, the world that that was the world in which we used to love and live as citizens of this earth. It's the realm of this world. And the soul is pointing to something that's inside that's been transformed and that actually points to a more transcendent reality. And the picture that he has here is that we've got the flesh, all the things that are around us that are part of our former way of living that are constantly trying to get their hooks into us. We're trying to live as citizens of a higher and more transcendent reality, and yet the passions of the flesh are always getting their hooks into us and warring against us, pulling us back to a former way of living. And here's why I think Peter is so strong in his urging, that he beseeches them to do this, and why he's so urgent with us. I think we, like Peter's readers, we often underestimate the power of the world's pull upon our souls, we underestimate it. And we underestimate the damage that giving in to the passions of the flesh actually has upon our souls. Whether we underestimate the power of sin or we overestimate our ability to toy, without, toy with it without damaging us, either way, Peter calls us to abstain from the passions of our flesh. Therefore, we need to take them seriously because often we take them far too Lightly. Let me give you one example from the Bible of someone who underestimated the power that the flesh has upon our souls. So you remember we studied Abraham uh, before Marshall left. And do you all remember who Abraham's nephew was? You guys remember? Who was it? Lot. So Lot was a righteous man. He knew what was right. But what Lot did is he decided to go and live among the citizens of Sodom and Sodom. ...and Gomorrah, which are we all know now are a wicked and depraved people. And day after day, rather than living a holy and distinct life... ...he began to take on the practices and the passions of the people that were surrounding him. And Peter, in his second letter, says this of Lot. Listen to what he says. Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... ...and as a righteous man... He lived among them as one of them, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So although Lot knew what was right, he tormented himself by embedding himself in this people. Not living a holy and distinct life, but actually taking upon himself the culture and the passions of those that were around him. And sadly, in the end, after he allowed these passions of the flesh to war against his soul, he was a changed man. He was a weak man. Do you remember when the angels come and he begins to talk to his family and he warns them? What do they do? They think he's joking. He has no credibility. He's a weakened leader because he's not lived a holy life as an example. He's morally depraved. When the people from the town ask for the men that are staying in the house, what does he do? He offers his daughters instead as though this is some sort of a decent exchange for protecting the people in his home. He's become morally depraved. And then even after he leaves Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, he has this incident where he's a drunkard and the incident with his daughters, which many of you know, he's a very depraved Man, even when the angels revealed that judgment was coming, he didn't willingly and quickly go. He had to be dragged from this city. A righteous man who knew better had allowed the passions of the flesh to so wage war against his soul that by the end, even though he was tormented, he couldn't bring himself to leave. Lot is a lesson for each of us. He was a righteous man who knew better. He knew better. But because he underestimated the power of sin to corrupt his soul, over time, he took on the passions of the flesh of those that were around him, and it wreaked havoc upon his soul. You and I know what it feels like to allow the passions of the flesh to wage war against our souls. We know this, the moment of anger. The rage that we let out, thinking it will make things better or at least make us feel better, and then we live with the aftermath of the words that we have spoken to those that we love. The morning after having a bit too much to drink when you come to your senses and you realize some of the things and some of the things you've said and things you've done and the shame that comes with those. The moment of slander, so mad at this person You just want to vent. You want to share. And you say these things about this other person that you then later regret when they hear about these things and they're obviously hurt by your words. The greed. I I just want this. And you're willing to begin to bend what you know are the uh, standards of integrity in order to get what you want because you just want a little bit more. The greed that's made you compromise your integrity. The passions of the flesh... They promise us joy, but in reality, they lead to sorrow and suffering and regret. The passions of the flesh, they are not our friends. They are our enemies, and they are waging war against our souls. And day by day, if we do not resist them, they will wear us down, and they will wreak havoc upon our souls. John Owen captures the heart of this battle between the passions of the flesh and our souls when he says this. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing sin. You be killing sin or sin will be killing you. In other words, there is no neutral ground. There's no trifling with sin. We are either killing sin or sin is killing us. Picture it this way. Picture I walked up to you after this service today. I pulled out a little vial of pills and I offered you one of the pills. I said, here, take one of these. What would you do? I said, well, what is it? And I'd say to you, well, it's a poison pill. Now, <laughs> don't worry, though. It's only a little bit of poison, and you've got to take a ton of these before it'll really kill you. So would you like one? You'd be like, thanks. No, thanks. No, it's okay. I'm not really into poison pills. So then I, I take it, and I break it in half. And I'm like, well, let's just, now it's just a half a poison pill. And really, it takes a lot of these to kill you. Would you like one? You'd, no, thanks. You'd think I was, was insane. But friends, so often... We are far more conscientious about what we put into our bodies than we are about what we put into our souls. None of them in this room would take even half of a poison pill, even if it took thousands to ultimately kill you. And yet, we will take the poison pill of the passions of our flesh into our souls daily, trifling with them, thinking that somehow if we just have just a little and we can manage it and moderate it, that it won't really have the same impact on our souls. But the reality is, is that the passions of our flesh, they have the ability to actually destroy our body and our souls. That poison pill, it's just going to kill your body. But the passions of the flesh, sin, it can destroy your body and your soul. Do you take sin and its consequences this seriously, as seriously as you would take the poison pill that I offered you? Do you see sin as your mortal enemy? Or do you see it as something that you need to manage? Just, I'll take a little bit, but not too much. Let me handle this in just the right way. If that's you, take note of the life of Lot. Lot was a righteous man. I don't think he went down to Sodom and Gomorrah imagining that he was going to be doing the things that he was going to be doing just a few years later. He probably went down there, and at first, like his conscience was kicking, and then he would ignore his conscience, and he'd slowly sear his conscience. But over time, it wore him down in such a way that by the time he left, I bet he was doing things that were previously unimaginable to him because he thought it's just half a poison pill. What damage could it actually do? But over time, it was wreaking havoc on his soul. Also, be careful not to underestimate the impact of what I would call respectable sins. The passions of the flesh, they don't often present themselves as a poison pill that's going to kill you. They say it's not that bad, and look, everyone around you is doing it. Just even all of the people around you just now in this church. Think about this. How many people would fault you or challenge you for materialism? How many people would really get after you about vanity, thinking too much about your image? How many people would correct you or push back if they heard you gossiping about someone else in the church? How many would get on you if they saw you idolizing the success and well-being of your children? How many would push back if when they hear you talk about your career that it seems awfully self-centered, that really it's about you and your success? These are what I would call respectable sins. They're in our context all the time, such that we don't even really think about them anymore. But these can have the same impact upon our souls. They drain us, they get our passions, they get our affections... ...and in the end they stand between us and the God who made us... ...and how he made us to live. So when sin comes knocking at your door, Peter says, abstain from it... ...as you would a bottle full of poison pills. The Christian life isn't neutral. The reality is if we're not killing sin, it will be killing us... ...and that God calls us to war against the passions of our flesh which are waging war against us. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So we're living as elect exiles. We're putting off something. We're abstaining from passions of the flesh. Then Peter also tells us as elect exiles, we are to live positively. We were to have an honorable conduct. And we're to do so before a watching world so that they might join us in glorifying God. So this brings us to point number two, our witness To the world, our witness to the world. Look with me there again, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter is going to go on now to state his case positively. He instructs his readers to keep their conduct honorable. Now, conduct here speaks of a way of life it isn't a litmus test of activities that we are to abstain from so often what we think of the christian life as being is don't do these things and maybe do a few of these things but that's not what peter is talking about so it's it's similar to uh the advice that i received from an uncle this is growing up he had a litmus test for me this was his advice to me on how to live life and it was also a little bit of dating advice I, i shared this in the first First sermon or first uh, service, and not many people uh, recognize this saying, so I'm guessing this might be just an Indiana thing. But here, listen to this gem of wisdom, and this is often how we live the Christian life. Nick, this is what he said to me: Don't drink, dance, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. <laughs> I thought this is pretty solid. Don't drink, dance, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. So this was his litmus test of here's how you live a rather upright life: Don't drink, dance, smoke, or chew, or date girls that do. But honorable conduct, it's not a list of prohibitions. It's much more complex than that. It's a positive, holistic approach to life. We are to live positively honorable lives. And the word honorable here, it points to a life of moral beauty. It's something that's good, something that's noble, something that's praiseworthy, something that we desire as a good, noble, and praiseworthy thing. In this life of honorable conduct, it's not self-righteous or condescending. It's not a list of things we do and don't do that we then hold over other people. It's a life of humble reliance upon God that embraces obedience as a blessing from God. My question is, do you see obedience in this way? Do you see it as honorable, good, praiseworthy, something beautiful? So often we think of obedience as onerous. It's a task. It's, it's striving. It's legalistic. It's something that hems us in, that takes away our freedom. But in reality, obedience is living as we were designed to live, to do what we were designed by God to do. So often, sin puts itself forward as freedom. Throw off the shackles. Do what you want. Have the freedom that you want, and it will make you happy. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. Sin is what enslaves us. And obedience is what frees us, frees us to live as God has designed us to live. Living the life of holiness that God has designed us to live is like watching an athlete that is made for their sport. Have you ever watched something? They're just fabulous at their sport. Picture watching Michael Phelps swimming. His whole body, the way he glides through the water effortlessly. This guy is made for this sport. Michael Jordan playing basketball. It's just a beautiful thing To behold, Tiger Woods playing golf. The first time I ever saw a real golfer hitting live, I was amazed at how easy they made it look and how just flying. So much different than what many of us were doing yesterday at our men's golf outing, slightly different. Those were men not made to play golf. Tiger Woods made to play (laughs) golf. (laughs) But I think you get what I'm getting at here. Some people are made to play these sports. Well, God has made us. Obedience, not some of us, not some gifted few, but all of us. He's made us for obedience. He's made us to live a life that we were designed for because He knows that it will bring us joy and satisfaction by living a blessed life that He's made for us to live. Peter then tells us to live this good, this blessed, this honorable life. ...in the midst of Gentiles. And what he's getting at here is earlier in chapter 2... ...he's been vamping on this idea of us being like Israel. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so we are to live like Israel in exile in the midst of a fallen world. So this, this bubble of honorable conduct that's on display... ...in the midst of a world that is opposed to this kingdom. Peter then explains that living honorable lives among Gentiles... ...it will call forth two responses... From a watching world. So, first, some whom he calls evildoers, they're gonna speak out against us. So, when they see our honorable conduct, it's gonna be like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's gonna grate on them. They're gonna see that we're living differently than them. They're gonna wonder why we don't join them in what they're doing. And so, they're gonna begin to speak out against us and the honorable conduct in which we're living. So it's very similar to when Christ came and the, as the light of the world and he shines his righteous light into the unholiness and the sinful conduct of the world and therefore they rejected him. When we live honorable lives, we can't live perfectly like Christ, but honorable lives before the world, they will see it, it will convict them and they will speak out against us because they no longer want to see us living these honorable lives. It convicts them of their sin. But rejection won't be the only response of a watching world. Some will reject, but some won't. Some will see our honorable conduct and good deeds, and they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, when I first was looking at this verse, I thought that meant when Christ returns on the day of his visitation. But as I studied and began to look at it further, I think it's the day of visitation when the gospel that we are proclaiming, the good works that we are speaking and that we are putting on display, it's when those good works and the gospel that accompanies them actually brings people into the kingdom on the day of visitation when they are convicted and brought into the kingdom of God. So you see, when we live honorable lives, when we bear witness to Christ, yes, some will reject, but others will receive this good news and they will join us in glorifying God. So the question is, are you prepared for these two responses? Are you prepared that when you live an honorable and good life, that there will be some who will speak out against you? Do you realize that when you claim the name of Christ that it puts a target upon your back and that people will therefore seek to reject you simply by identifying with Christ and living a holy and righteous life? Are you prepared for this? Have you embraced this? Do you see this as the norm of the Christian life that's part of what it means to identify with Christ? On the flip side, are you motivated by the fact that some, through your holy conduct, will actually come to know Christ? So often we think about the rejection that will ensue, but rarely do we think about we have the privilege that as we live holy and honorable lives and bear witness to Christ, there will be some who are once enemies of God who have been now brought into the kingdom and will join us in glorifying God for eternity. The only response to us speaking isn't rejection. It can also be a reception of the good news joining us in glorifying God. Now, at the end of a message like this, it would be easy for us to reach down for the boots and start pulling up the bootstraps. We need to abstain from this and live this way. But friends, if that's our response, we would be mistaken. It would be a mistake to seek to live this life through our own strength. The only battles that we are able to win are the battles that Christ has already won for us. Christ, in his mercy and love, he took the ravages of sin upon himself. Every day of his life, Christ waged war against the passions of the flesh. And yet unlike us, he won. And it is his righteousness that has now been given to us. And for every time we've given into the passions of our flesh, he waged war against those sins by taking the wrath of God upon himself, satisfying God's justice, dying for us, rising for us, and pouring out his spirit upon us so that we can now live the very life that he has lived for us. Friends, we cannot leave here thinking we can simply put off and put on. First, we have to go through the cross of Christ, that he's lived for us, died for us, rose for us. He's poured out his spirit upon us, and he now empowers us to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to embrace an honorable, good, and beautiful life that we might bear witness to a watching world. And yes, face the rejection of some, but some through us come to know him and worship him with us forever. This is the life ...that he calls us to, and it goes in and through Jesus Christ. We are his chosen people. We are loved, purchased, set apart, and added to his beloved people. All that we do is rooted in who we are. And all that we are is rooted in Jesus Christ who's already done it for us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have freed us from the passions of the flesh... And that we are no longer enslaved to them. I pray that by your spirit you would enable us and empower us to resist. And that you would also by your spirit open our eyes to the beauty and goodness of living an honorable life. That by your spirit we have the privilege of looking more and more like the good, beautiful, and praiseworthy son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would... Remind us of Christ, remind us of who we are and remind us of what you have called us to be. And that as we do so, we might with joy face the rejection of this world and with joy celebrate that in and through us, your kingdom is going forth. We ask these things in Christ's name.